braving the weather, which isn't so bad, is it? I mean, when you, when you look at the weather in Chicago and in Canada and New York City, we're in high cotton down here. In fact, I talked to someone the other day, and he said when the sun comes out, if it came out yesterday and still be like in the 40s, he was going outside and taking a sun bath. It was so hot for him. <laughs> Let's be opening our Bibles this morning as we continue in our study of Hebrews. And we're this morning taking the section from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 through Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. And as you know, this is kind of a, a survey of the, I really don't want to call it the book of Hebrews. I don't want to call it a letter. It's really a, a sermon. It's a speech. So the speech, if you would, of the sermon of Hebrews. And as we continue in this, let's remember always to continue, uh, to continue to remember the reason for the writing or the reading, reason for this exhortation. The reason for the exhortation is not that these, Christian, these Hebrew Christians have participated in individual and personal sin and that the writer is trying to tell them they're in great danger because they have personal sin activities in their lives. This is not the issue. Although it's never correct and God's will for us to have the activity of sin in our lives. The issue in Hebrews, remember, is apostasy. It is that decision, once being in Christ, to decide to reject, to remove yourself, to get out of the boat using the vernacular of Acts chapter 27 when Paul says, don't get out of the boat. If you stay in the boat, you will be saved alive. The Lord has promised all will be saved alive. Remember, that was the promise of God. And then the means of God producing the promise of God is the obedience of his people. And so as we study Hebrews, we will see the continuing connection, as you see in all of the New Testament, that the will of God and the purpose of God and the decree of God and the promises of God are never standing alone and apart in and of themselves, having nothing to do with our cooperation. But God makes this promise, he does his work, and he sets his life and his hope and his purposes in us. But as he does that, we are called to a response. And the response is, first, faith to receive the promises, and then faith to continue in the promises until the end. So we always must make sure as believers that we're not seeing the Bible as, well, once I'm saved, it doesn't matter what I do and how I do it and where I do it and when I do it. It's always on the basis of faith that God saves us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is on the continuing path of faith that we are saved. Faith as God's gift to us. Faith as God's work in us. So again, as we study Hebrews, let's not lose sight of the reason for the exhortation. Don't leave the boat. Don't allow the circumstances and the ills and the attacks and the difficulties and the problems and the disappointments and the whatevers of this life 
to cause you to begin to reconsider your faith in Christ. Because I believe that every opportunity that we have to sin has a seed of that question, hath God said? Is God really good? Can God really be trusted? Is this that I'm going through really going to be used by God for his purposes? You have those seeds in every temptation. So we begin this morning, or rather we continue this morning with chapter 3, verse 1. Father, thank you so much how good you are. Father, as we said before, as we survey our life from last year, Father, it is filled with disappointments, disobedience, and failure. And at the same time, Father, there are also many opportunities and activities of success and faith and obedience. But, Father, as we survey our lives, Father, and as we see those things which are not according to your will, Father, cause us to remember that even in those, you are at work. Even in those, you are filling us with your grace and your mercy. Father, thank you so much that your work in us is not connected equally to our obedience to you. Father, surely you call us to obey, but it is the work of your grace that is so much more powerful, moving us, motivating us to obey. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in chapter 3, verse 1, we pick up where the author has continued to explain the significance, remember, of the incarnation. You remember last week, we went chapter 2, verse 5, all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 18. And we were talking about the significance of the incarnation. You remember what the incarnation means? Does someone remember what the word incarnation means? What does that mean? Jesus made flesh. The word carno is in there. Flesh is in there. And so Jesus is enfleshed. In other words, the great son of God who is talked about in chapter 1, this one who is greater than all the angels, in chapter 2, is shown now to have become a man. And as a man, he is now the Son of God, proclaimed to be and used as the Son of Man. And so we're continuing in that context, the manhood of the person of Jesus, as we continue today in this continuing section where the author is showing the superiority of the person of Christ the person of Christ in his divinity as the Son of God, and then the person of Christ in his manhood, the Son of Man. And so let's pick it up this morning as the author transfers and transitions, rather, into beginning to compare Jesus in his ministry as a man to the ministries of other men of God. And he begins with Moses, and it's very understandable and very important and probably pretty shocking to the Jews as they would read this why he begins with Moses. So let's read in chapter 1 verses 1 through the beginning of verse 2. Therefore, holy brethren, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him 
So let's look at those words. And I know I didn't read the whole verse. That's why I put a little A next to two. The A means just the first part of that verse. The B would mean maybe the second half, or if it's three parts to it, A, B, C, and that's why you will see that. So now the author addresses his audience according to their saved status. Now remember, we're talking about believers here. And so as the author continues to instruct them and to warn them, and as he gets now into really the nitty-gritty and the difficulty of the situation, he's going to begin to say, as if we would say in our country, look, as important as George Washington was, the ministry of this person today eclipses anything and everything that even a George Washington would have done. And that would be a challenge. And so as he begins to challenge, he begins on the basis of reminding them of their saved status. This is very important. As we walk in accountability with one another, and as we care for one another, and especially as we walk in accountability and caring, when I say accountability, I don't mean in a way that we're looking for everybody's faults. I don't mean that by accountability. What we mean by accountability is walking in friendship and in brotherhood and in sisterhood and sharing our lives and caring for one another. And when, if, or when faults occur or sin is exposed, because accountability isn't for the purpose of looking for sin. That's not what accountability is. It's for the purpose of mutually growing together in Christ. And when you do that, sin, failure, weakness is going to be exposed. It's just going to be exposed. And before the exposure and dealing with the issue of sin or a fault or whatever it would be in your mind, let's make sure that we understand as we share with one another that the one that we're sharing with is built up on the foundation of Christ, is shown to be you're saved. That what I need to share with you is based within the context, is given within the context of your saved status. Because if we don't first share the evidences of grace, and as we share evidences of sin or whatever, the enemy is very, very good about undermining foundations. And so before we work on the top of the house, we want to make sure that the foundation of the house is going to support that which we're going to do at the top of the house. So he begins like this as he continues to show that Jesus is actually superior even to Moses because this is going to be a very strong issue with these Jewish believers, that even Moses is not the man of God. So how does he begin? How does he address these, these, these people, this, these Hebrew folks? He first, of all, he first of all calls them holy brothers or brethren who share in the heavenly calling. So just three things I want to point out. And as you're going through your Bible and as you read the Word of God, remember, when the author of the book or the letter addresses believers and he calls them by these kinds of terms that root them and declare their saved status, 
That is the Holy Spirit also talking to us about our saved status. So if they are called holy brethren because of their saved status, are we holy brethren? Now, how many of you, if someone came up to you on the street and asked you, John, are you a holy man? You know, how many of us basically would say, no, I'm not holy? You know, wouldn't we basically say, oh, no, no? And yet, it certainly does mean, you know, depending on the context, but I think if that, that ever does come up, take the high road and say, yes, I am holy. What? Are you telling me you're holy? Yeah, yeah, and let me share with you why I'm not. No, 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 I'm not holy. No, 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 I'm not holy. No, 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 no. you are in God's sight. You and I are holy. Therefore, are we holy? Yes or no? Yes. Yes, we're holy. Filled with fault and failure and frailty, yet still holy. Holy meaning totally other than, completely different, unique as God himself is unique. Now, are we holy in position? Yes. Are we holy in our practices? No, I don't think so. Ask any husband or any wife whether his, the spouse is holy, and you will find out, no, there's not a whole lot of holiness going on in that one. But positionally, we're holy. So holy describes their new nature in Christ. Remember what 2 Peter 1.4 says, that we are partakers of the divine nature. God has infused us, has imputed to us the nature of his own son. We are holy. They were holy. And by the way, they're also called brethren, meaning what? They were all connected to one another through the one life of Christ. Who share. These people share something in common. What do they share? That describes their sharing of the fellowship of Christ. They share together in the common nature of God. We are a group of people who are connected to one another, and in fact, we are more connected and more vitally connected and will be eternally connected to one another while we won't be to family members who are not saved. We are now the family of God. And the sad thing about it is that many of us may have family members with whom we are not as connected as we are to church members, right? But that's the reality of it. We are the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And no matter how we act and who we are and what we look like, we are connected together through the common life of the Holy Spirit. These people were connected together. They were a community. They had a heavenly calling. The calling, you remember, describes God's calling to them and the fellowship. Remember what 1 Corinthians 1.9 says? For God is faithful who has called us into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. What is your calling in life? Someone may say, what, 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 are you, what is your calling in life? What is your calling? Well, before you begin to tell them, I'm a secretary, I'm a wife, I'm a doctor, you know, before you begin to tell them all of these things, what is your calling in life? For God is faithful who has called us into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. What is our calling? 
Is your calling to be an engineer? Is your calling to be a student? Is your calling to whatever it is to be a taxicab driver? No. What is your calling by God? To be part of the fellowship of the community of God. And then as a result of that calling, that calling will work itself out and function within the context of your secular activity. The calling in the fellowship of Christ will work itself out within the context of your secular activity. But you're called into Christ. That's our calling. These people were called into Christ. The word heavenly here is a word that just describes the source of their calling. God is the source of their calling and the place to which they are called. The source and the place, heavenly. Now, what does he say in part B of verse 1? He says this, consider Jesus. Why does he say that? Remember, everything as far as they were concerned about their lives and their circumstances and their world, everything was falling apart and coming under attack. And what often are we prone to do when that happens? You see, the difficulty and the problem when we're in desperate circumstances, you know what the real problem is when we're in desperate circumstances? May I share with you the real problem when we encounter desperate circumstances? That we become desperate. The real problem is not the desperate circumstance, but that I will become desperate. How many of you have experienced desperate circumstances where you were challenged to become desperate? Curtis, raise your hand on that, brother. I know you didn't hear it, but raise your hand. In the midst of desperate circumstances, the greatest problem is that I will begin to experience desperateness. I don't even know if that's a word. Desperation. You must be from Chicago up there, Detroit or someplace like that. Are you from out of town? Where are you from? Detroit, yeah. She's from Detroit. You see, we from New Orleans, we didn't get trained that way. The desperateness, desperation. And how do I overcome the temptation to be desperate? By looking at the circumstances and looking at the details and pondering what's going to happen and worrying and going to people and talking about, do you feel that, what's what's the only, only way out? Consider Jesus. Do you feel the temptation of the enemy that when you are experiencing these things to begin to look, tempt you to look another way, become self-absorbed, and as you do, and to the extent that you do, Your faith begins to question the viability, the sovereignty, and especially the goodness of God. And how quickly do you want to counter that? Immediately. He says, look, church, Hebrew church, you're in a bad place in the world. No one denies that. You're in trouble. You're in a nasty place. You may feel like all hell is breaking out, and it might be. And in fact, it's supposed to be that way on earth. 
But the only way out is to look to Jesus. It is a look of faith that often is not the result of feeling, but of decision. Now, let me insist on this with you. When we are undergoing whatever it is to attack our faith, to look to him, and every sin is that way, we must decide. I've had so many people say, yeah, but I didn't feel like it. Or they'll tell me this usually, it's difficult. I don't say it's not difficult. I know it's difficult because everything in me cries against it. Everything in me cries against it, but I must decide. May I put that word in your mind this morning? And would you live on the basis of that word, decide to look and consider Jesus? But you don't understand. Decide. But it's difficult. Decide. But I don't feel like it. Decide. But I don't know if it, decide, 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 decide what? Decide. Decide. Fight the fight of faith. Fight it. Decide to look to Jesus. Careful observation. <clears throat> Careful observation of the spiritual truth that you may not even be experiencing and seeing, but you know is there because you are in Christ. Decide for the spiritual truth of all that you know about God. You see, this is why it's so important to be smothered in and completely inundated in the Word of God. So important got to be permeated every bit of the core of your being with all of the word of God. Look to Jesus. Careful observation of spiritual truth for the protection and guidance of your faith. Put a reference down there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. You can look that up later. Why should we consider Jesus? Let me go through this quickly. Why? Why consider him? Well, the verse tells us. He says, consider Jesus. And I'm going to have to move along a little faster, I see. Why? Well, look at it. He's the apostle and high priest of our profession. He's the apostle and high priest of our profession. Very quickly, the word apostle is one who is sent on a journey to take a message from someone. He is a messenger with a message. An apostle was one who was sent from God, representing God, representing the Word of God, representing the purpose and the will of God to the people. Jesus is that apostle, capital A. High priest, the high priest, remember, was the one who officiated the sacrificial system, the sacrificing of the animals. He is the one who represented the people in himself, even on the breastplate of the high priest. The 12, remember, stones representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel on the heart of the priest showing that he is carrying the people unto God and representing in himself the people before a holy God. So what is the word saying? What is the author saying when he calls Jesus the apostle and high priest? He is saying here that God and man are meeting on the same ground in this one man, Jesus Christ, that God is represented in Christ, 
And in Christ, man is represented, and God and man come together in Jesus Christ. That's what that's saying. It's certainly saying it in a way that is indicative of the external or personal incarnational ministry, you know, his ministry as a man. But it means so much more. It means that only in this one man do we have the reality and the truth of God and man coming together to be mutually indwelling. Emmanuel, God with us and us with God. So he says, consider Jesus. Why? Because only in Jesus does God come to us. And only in Jesus do we go to God. Where else are you going to go? Remember, Peter? Where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. And what else? He's not only the apostle and high priest, but he's faithful. He's faithful. He was and is and always will be the only faithful man and we are gathered up into his faithfulness so that God now declares us to be in Christ as faithful as his own son was to the ministry how many of you feel faithful how many of you really are faithful practically none of us none of us all of us fail but how many of us are considered by God to be his faithful children Yes. You see, you say, you say well, I don't, I don't like to think that way. I don't like, you know why you don't like to think that way? Because it's pride. Pride says, don't think of yourself as faithful when God says you're faithful. Because put the flesh first. Consider what the flesh says and what the world says and what your sensibilities feel first. Consider that. No, consider God. Oh, what, I, I don't, I, you know, it makes me feel fun. Well, let the feeling of pride dying occur. Come on, how many of you are comfortable with, if I said, you are faithful? How many of it makes you a little uncomfortable? Right, Alan, I mean, you know, you know, I didn't ask your daddy because, you know, your daddy should fall off the chair on this. But, you know, it, it's, it's a, right, AJ, right? It's like, uh, I don't know, man, I'm not, oh, no, no. The uncomfortableness is that we're not comfortable with what God has said about us because we know too much about ourselves. And the problem is we need to know a lot more about God. And we know just too much about ourselves. And we're functioning and looking on that more than what? On what God. I know a whole lot about me, but guess what? <clears throat> as much as I know about myself, first of all, my wife knows more. And secondly, God knows a whole lot more. And yet in the midst of it, he still calls me in Christ. He calls you in Christ what? Faithful, holy, beloved, children, brethren. Why consider Jesus? Where else are you going to go? And when you face all of your trials and temptations, and especially when you face your failures. May I take a moment? <clears throat> Several years ago, I remember, having committed a sin. I know that shocks you, but I, did, I, I committed a sin several years ago. I know it shocks you, but, but I just have to confess that, Billy. I committed a sin several years ago. And I remember praying and walking out there in the park. 
And I remember this. Oh, God, I'm so wrong. I'm so bad. You know, just beating myself down. And it's almost as if I heard a, an audible voice saying, shut up. No, I mean, I literally stopped. And the Lord says, you're emphasizing an untruth. Well, but I'm so bad. I fail so much, and I'm so weak. Where was, I, where was my mind and my preoccupation? What, what was I building myself on? Pride. It's all pride. Oh, that doesn't seem like pride, does it, Oman? It seems like the height of humility. But that kind of thing was pride. Well, you're telling me you shouldn't confess sin? No, I'm telling you, you should confess sin. But you don't wallow in the failure. I was wallowing in the fa- That's pride. See, because something about my flesh wanted to take on some of the payment and feel some of the, oh, I need to experience some of this. So maybe, are you with me on this? Or am I the only one who's been weird like that? It's pride. Let me encourage you today that when the Lord shows you your nastiness, Charlie, your nastiness, even when he uses your wife to show you your nastiness, and that's where it really hurts, doesn't it, brother? I don't mind being shown my nastiness by anybody else, but when Gene says it, I don't like that. And I I mean the truth. That's the truth. I don't like it. And when I am shown my nastiness of sin, my flesh wants to do something other than what God wants me to do. Son, you are wrong. Father, I'm wrong. Father, apply the grace of your forgiveness. Apply the power of your grace for overcoming and cleansing. Leave the other junk alone and let it die. Don't wallow in your failures. Don't do it. That was a major turning point in my life for the ability to be able to deal with sin appropriately according to the will of God. And I know there are many of you out here who probably have been doing this. Today, let it die. And let me move along. Let's read verse 2b. What does verse 2b say? Oh, here it is, who is faithful, who appointed him. Just as Moses was also faithful. Now, he's getting into the deep water. See, it's fine to talk about Jesus and how wonderful Jesus is, but now we're going to talk about Moses. And now for the Jews, we're getting in the deep water. In comparing the ministry of Jesus with Moses, Moses' ministry, the author is speaking about the most revered leader of Israel. Now, I'm not going to go into the background of Moses, but you remember who Moses was? The great and mighty deliverer and the lawgiver. And when they said Moses... It gathered up all of the issue of God's grace to deliver from bondage and to constitute them as a nation at the foot of Sinai through the giving of the law. 
the law, meaning not only the Ten Commandments, but all that was inferred and given in the law, the whole sacrificial system that allowed them to walk as forgiven people under the law of God and all the sacrifices and all the animals and all the high priests and all of that that's gathered up in this understanding of just this one name, Moses. The great power and purpose of God is gathered up in their minds with this word Moses. And in fact, you could almost say that the entire Old Testament could be gathered up in one name, one man's name for these Jews. It's Moses. Because everything that we have is Moses and everything that we're continuing in is Moses and all that is continuing and the work of Moses and the giving of the law extended all the way through and permeated everything about their lives. Moses. Moses. We don't quite have that understanding. But for these Jewish people, their Jewishness was Moses. Probably more than any other man. That isn't to not identify others, but probably more than any other man, it was Moses. He eclipsed them all. And you see here, it says this, that he was faithful to him, appointed Moses a faithful in all faithful in building God's house. The word house is a metaphor. It just means it is that metaphor which pictured the relationship between God and his people. You'll see the word house many times in Hebrews. It is a metaphor to say the gathering of God's people in God's place as a family. How many of us in the last few days gathered in a relative's house as a family? There was a house. I don't think many of us stood under a tree yesterday and opened Christmas presents, did we? Anybody stood under a tree and did that? All of you were in a house. That's what that's talking about. Verses 3 to 6a. I'm not going to read that because I've spent too much time in the other part, but I encourage you to read it. But in these verses, the author is showing us as great as Moses was, you know, this man who brought forth the revelation of the house of God and the tabernacle in the Old Testament. As great as he was, he was God's servant who oversaw the construction or the revelation or the bringing forth of that house of the Old Testament, the tabernacle. But Jesus is greater. Why? Because he is the son. He's not a servant in the house, but he's the son over the house. And so the house was begun to be built by Moses, a servant. But the completion of the house is done by the son, who is the builder of the house and who, in fact, is himself his own body. He is called the house. He is the house of God, if you would. We are the body of Jesus, using the metaphor in a general family sense. So he's begun now to show that Moses, significant as he was, and he was significant, he was a servant. He was faithful. It was an incredible ministry. It was fully the ministry of God. Nothing was wrong with that ministry, and nothing was, listen to this, nothing was deficient about the ministry of Moses. Nothing was deficient. It was totally sufficient in its purpose. It was totally sufficient in its effect. 
The difference was, what was its real purpose and effect? Don't begin to think that the Old Testament law and prophets and the sacrificial system was deficient. It was completely sufficient for what God intended it to do for the period of time where God used it. Sometimes we get goofy on these things. But then God had constituted it only as a temporary sufficiency and had temporary effect. The permanent eternal sufficiency and effect was to come in Christ. So let's make sure that we don't see the Old Testament and the law and the, and the uh, sacrificial system as what it shouldn't be. Let's see it. From God's perspective, this, is, was, this was their problem. They weren't seeing it this way. Thus the, the sermon. But you see, we, verse 6b, he says this. Let me turn to 6b. And he says, we are the, his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence to the boasting and the boasting of our hope. He says the house that Moses built was a temporary house. But we are the house. We are the house that Moses' house prefigured. The church is the house of God. So you see, as the author tells them of their present safe status, he also wants to remind them of this. But we're the house. But on what basis? We're the house if we continue. We're the house as we continue unto the end. And so he's done that. He's shown them about Moses. And now he's done a wonderful, encouraging thing, but he ruins it by being negative. You know, preacher, why do you have to be negative? Why do you have to get on the bad side? Why don't you just build us up? Build us up. Encourage us. Just encourage us. Why don't you just give us the good things, the positive things of God? But you see, this is the positive stuff of God. This is the good thing, the encouraging work of God. So beginning with chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to 4.13 comes the second warning. Remember, there are five warnings in Hebrews. This is the second one. And in verse 7, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. That comes from Psalm 95, you may remember, and to be instructed to read the whole psalm. And so in these verses, the Old Testament example of unbelief and disobedience resulting in rejection of Israel is shared with them. Why is he doing it? Because they are being tempted to do the same thing. And so Psalm 95 is just the backdrop of that time, the backdrop of that time. When did that occur? If you were to read Numbers 13 and 14, you will see the historical relationship between Psalm 95, and I do want to encourage you to do that. Know the Old Testament. I'm not going to go into the details today. Love to be able to spend a whole lot more time on a lot of this, but don't have the time to do that. But Psalm Numbers 13 and 14, remember? They get out of Egypt, and about... Nine months later, they're at Kadesh Barnea, 
three months later, I think it was, Cadiz Bonnet and what's happening. Let's send out a group of guys to look at the land over there. It's a promised land. It's our land. Let's just reconnoiter the land. They all come back, and only two guys say we can do it. Caleb and Joshua, everybody else say we can't do it. Why? Because they're big people over there. You've got some giants living. They've got some problems over there. This won't be a piece of cake. And so they grumbled. They grumbled. And the Lord swore in his wrath, you do not trust me. You reject me in the grumbling. Well, I have to remember that. My complaining, I reject God. The Lord said to Moses, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And so you remember that. They had to walk in the wilderness for 40 years. You see the idea of rest here, entering my rest. Uh, this is so big, but God's intention that his people would dwell in and enjoy life from the perspective of his rest. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, man was created at the end of the sixth day. God said it is good. And then beginning in chapter 2, which is really the end of chapter 1, the word says in verses 2 and 3, and God rested from his work. Man was intended to have been created at the end of the sixth day and to live continually in the presence and fellowship of the seventh of God's rest, the seventh day, even though they would be chronological days, the big seventh relational rest of God in the finished, satisfying work, joyful contentment of God. That's what that word means, the word rest. Contentment, joy, satisfaction, dependence, obedience, trusting in God's completed rest. Man was supposed to live there. It's the finished work of God. You remember, there was another man who came, and he said, it's finished in John 19, 30. He said, it's finished. He's the Sabbath of God. He's the one in whom all of God's work is completed. And we are now living in the eternal rest of God as we are in Christ. You see, the seventh-day Adventists, at least in my mind, are wrong. It's no longer a day that we celebrate. We are celebrating a man. The day always stood for a man, a relationship, contentment, joy, satisfaction, rest, obedience, a man. So Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come unto me, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you my rest, rest, my rest. Why? I am rest. I am the finished work of God. He is. And so the picture of the old, the, the promised land in the Old Testament is a picture of us entering into rest. But it's a double kind of a picture. It is a rest that we enter into today spiritually, and it is a rest that we will experience fully on that day of resurrection completely and forever. So we have some of it now. We have the down payment today, but we don't have the, what? All this around us, what are we calling this? That way we live in. We don't have the circumstantial rest. We have the spiritual rest. One day we're going to have the actual circumstantial rest, the reality in the new heaven and the new earth. And so they went into the wilderness. You remember he took them into the wilderness. The wilderness. Quick comment. The wilderness is that spiritual 
wilderness of the world into which every one of us are taken when we're, taken, when we're born into Christ. We live in it anyway, but all of a sudden when we are born again, we realize that we are in a wilderness. And there's no escape from this worldly wilderness until we go into heaven. But in the wilderness is the place where God is hammering out his work in us and is molding and making us. Therefore, we are to reject the sin of the wilderness, but to embrace the sufferings and the difficulties of the wilderness as God's method of molding. We'll see that in First Peter. You see, the wilderness came as a result of Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. And the promised land, you see, the wilderness is a spiritual wilderness. You remember the curse, the thistles and thorns and the sweat and the pain and childbirth and so on. That's the wilderness. That's where we live. Every person of God lives in the wilderness. And every one of us must learn what is the great lesson of the wilderness. You remember in Deuteronomy? How many of you remember the great lesson of the wilderness? Deuteronomy chapter 8. You're right. And the Lord says to Israel, You want me to tell you why I've led you this many years in the wilderness? Yeah. Because it ain't been a cakewalk. We've had some trouble that you may learn this great lesson. What? That man does not live by bread alone, but that he lives by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Don't live by bread alone. And Jesus is tempted in being driven into the wilderness as we were in the wilderness and as we are in the wilderness. And he is tempted in Luke Bread, bread, bread. And Jesus says, Satan, man, is not live by bread alone. And that's the lesson we learn in the wilderness. That's what's happening in this land at this time. But we have another land that we're going to. But in this land, we're being tempted to jump ship, if you would. What is the application to the church? He says, be careful, don't do that. Don't do it. Verse 13, how to not do it? Encourage one another day after day as it is still called today. Verse 14, why can we encourage one another? Why? Because we share in Christ. We share in Christ through the means of our continuing faith. The Bible never gives a believer carte blanche assurance, but it says encourage one another, walk together, work together, be in accountability, be the family of God. So when one is attacked, the entire family comes together and walks with the one who is being attacked to protect them, not from the attack, but to be overcome by the attack so that the church may grow in strength. In verses, in chapter 3, verses 16 and 19, he gives a further explanation of already what he's done as far as the wilderness journey. And they're dying in the wilderness and their disobedience. And the author presses the issue home through a series of questions that pointed to an inevitable result. Who are the ones who died? Who are the ones who did this? Who are the ones with whom he was displeased? Those who were disobedient and unfaithful, or unbelief, rather, disobedience and unbelief. And so in chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, the church's response, what is our response to that Old Testament example? Ours is this. 
we still have a promise. You have not succumbed to this. Don't be overcome by it. Be aware of it. Be aware of its intent. Be aware of its danger. But don't be overcome. The promise of entering his rest still remains. He says, therefore, fear. Fear? How can I fear God? I love him so much. Fear. Have a reverential respect and an awesome understanding of the majesty and the holiness of God. And fear your own weaknesses and capability of falling. Fear that as you trust Jesus. Don't be like Israel. When they heard the gospel, they refused to exercise faith. You see, Israel's problem was, and I have here, hortatory, not auditory. It was a problem of the heart. They didn't mix what they heard with faith. It was a hortatory, not an auditory. They heard it, but they didn't hear it, you see, with the heart. So in verse 9, he says, he's quoting 95 of Psalm. The author reminds them that the promise is still a viable promise. There still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So he says what? Let's enter it. And how do we enter this rest? What does verse 12 tell us? How do we enter this rest? On what basis? On the basis of getting everything good in our life and overcoming circumstances and trying to get you know, everything together. What is the basis of our entering the rest? Be standing upon the word of God, which is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and which cuts through bone and marrow and all of that and gets right down to the very issue of discerning of the heart. He says, be people of the word. So I close with this. And next week, let's be preparing to read the next section, which will be chapter, chapter 4, verse 14, all the way to the end of chapter 6. So what are we going to do? Let's get the word under our belt so much better this next year. You see this room? I am so glad you're here. But I have got to say, this room should have 250 people in it. It should have 250 people. And when it does, I won't be satisfied. I'll be pleased. But then I'll be telling you, it should have 450. And then when we move into the auditorium, I will be pleased but not satisfied until we have what? 850. And then we move out of the auditorium into the big uh, uh, center in Jefferson Parish or Orleans, I won't be satisfied. I'll be pleased when we have 2,000, but I'll be saying we need 20,000. I will never be satisfied with what we have. Please, but never satisfied. Don't you be satisfied with this. Be always wanting more from God. Be pleased, but in Christ, want more. Ask God to increase your passion for the Word this year, to increase your passion to increase it. And when you ask it, and the Lord says, why don't you take a few moments to read the Word? Well, I just don't want to write. That's God saying, I'm trying to do what you want me to do. You've asked me to increase your passion. Let's do a little reading. Amen. Amen. See you next week.